Tonight, Trudeau's CBC State broadcaster decides that there are 18 words you shouldn't say anymore. It's December 1st, and this is The Ezra Levant Show. Why should others go to jail Why? when you're a biggest carbon consumer I know? There's 8,500 customers here, and you won't give them an answer. The only thing I have to say to the government about why I publish it is because it's my bloody right to do so. read the National Post newspaper that much anymore. They take $140,000 a week from Justin Trudeau, and it shows. I should tell you, they look down their nose at us, at least some of them do, but they've been stealing our stuff for years, literally going on the internet, taking our Rebel News videos and our pictures, taking our logo off of them, putting their logo on them, and then publishing it and selling ads on it, it's their own work. I finally sued them for doing that, and they admitted in court to everything, and they actually apologized, so I let them go. Here's their letter confessing, really, and apologizing. I just thought that whole thing was weird. They say they don't like our work, but they like our work enough to steal it and claim it as their work. It's pretty weird, isn't it? I think that's unethical, and they pretty much admitted to everything we said they did. I still like Conrad Black, of course, and Rex Murphy, of course. Maybe those are two reasons to keep reading the National Post. Most of the rest of the time, it's, it's the same as any other media party newspaper. Never forget, the majority of reporters at the National Post signed a petition to fire Rex Murphy from the newspaper because he dared to say in an opinion column that in his opinion, Canada is not inherently racist. So the majority of the people writing for that newspaper are like as kooky as NDP or Green Party extremists, cancel culture losers. That's a fact. It goes to the old rule, personnel is policy. If you are a conservative newspaper, but you hire a bunch of cancel culture woke leftists year after year, sorry, you're not gonna be a conservative newspaper very long. I hope Rex Murphy and Conrad Black live to be 120, but the National Post is doomed by its own hiring decisions. What a shame. That all said, and it's a long preamble, but I have to give that Trudeau bailout newspaper credit today because the National Post actually nailed it today. Here's their front page. Take a look. We've had a story in the middle. CBC's brainstorm of first world problems is to blindside everyday English by savaging us as intolerant. If we use a blacklist of allegedly tone-deaf words, that we shouldn't grandfather into the lexicon. How lame. Now that, that's a bit of a weird sentence, isn't it? It's like, the, you know that phrase, the quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog? Do you know that? That's a sentence that uses every letter of the alphabet. So it's fun and it's to practice typing, right? Well, that weird sentence on the front page of the National Post, as you can sort of tell, in red, uses 10 of the 18 words the CBC says the CBC says should be banned. Seriously, that's the story. Here's the tweet by CBC News. I love that part. It's CBC News. This is the news, people. This is not opinion. This is this is news. <laughs> Have you ever casually used the terms spirit animal, first world problem, or spooky? It might be time to rethink your use of these phrases and remove them from your daily lingo. 
I swear I thought that was a joke, something from a satirical website like the Babylon Bee. It is a joke, but the joke's on you. You pay $1.5 billion a year for this. That's the joke. But how depressing to see the reactions to that tweet. All the CBC journalists across the country started saying, oh, okay, I've got my new marching orders now. I mean, here's Trudeau's CBC propagandist uh, assigned to Saskatchewan. She says, I didn't know about some of these. Got any thoughts? Uh, <laughs> yeah, Stephanie, um, this might be one of those things that you leave for the Toronto office. There, there might be some really hip cafes in downtown Toronto near the CBC headquarters where only triple vax people go and they're required to sip their coffees through a mask. Where this kind of thinking is normal, Stephanie, I, I don't think it's going to fly in, uh, in Tisdale. Here's another CBC hack who says, Great work here by Priskesh highlighting an important truth. Words, how they're used, matter. So this is an important truth, guys. This is the truth. It's not an opinion. It's the truth. Here's another one. <laughs> this is the worst of all. They don't actually say anything other than the headline, words and phrases you may want to think twice about using. But this is the Nova Scotia Human Rights Commission. This is a government agency that prosecutes people for hurting feelings. So obviously they're really excited about a new thing to get offended about. They have a new list of banned words. Here's the story itself on the CBC homepage. Historical cultural context important for phrases like grandfathered in and spirit animal. Hmm. Uh, I'll read a little bit. Um, it's, it's written by Priscilla Ki Sun Huang. And her biography, I'll, I'll just read this before reading the article, says, Priscilla Ki Sun Huang is a reporter with CBC News based in Ottawa. She's worked with the investigative unit. CBC Toronto and CBC North in Yellowknife, Whitehorse and Iqaluit. She has a Master of Journalism from Carleton University. Oh my God, what a racist. White horse? Yellow knife, that's even more racist. And seriously, master. She's a master of journalism. You know what a master is, right? Doesn't she know the word master was the word used for people who had slaves? Is she a slave master? I'm so triggered. Am I doing that right? So only she gets to be that crazy. I want to say something. Um, yesterday we talked about how people who come to Canada, come to America, sometimes come for freedom and sometimes just come because it's better, perhaps financially, than where they came from. I think Priscilla was born in Canada, but she is of Korean heritage. It makes me very sad that someone whose nation is cut in half, where the north half of Korea is under totalitarian Orwellian slavery. Uh, is calling for word police and thought police. It makes me terribly sad that a Korean Canadian is doing that. It would be like if a Soviet emigrated Canada or America, I mean someone whose parents fled tyranny, maybe they were in the gulag, if the kids became enthralled with Marxism at university in Canada and started becoming word police tyrants like back in Stalin's day. It's, it's how I feel when I see anti-Israel Jews. It just makes me sad. So let's go through this article. Have you ever casually used the terms spirit animal, first world problem, or spooky 
it might be time to rethink your use of these phrases and remove them from your daily lingo. It's a news story, guys. CBC News. This is news. CBC Ottawa compiled a small list of words submitted by readers and some of our journalists who are black, indigenous, and people of color. So there's no more racism towards, say, the Irish or, or Italians or, or Jews. Were they allowed to make contributions to this list too? I mean, I didn't know when I was young that the word paddy wagon is derogatory towards the Irish. I, I just didn't know. Now I know. Apparently the CBC doesn't know it yet either, since a quick search of their website shows 22 articles where they use that slur. But of course, they're just white Irishmen. Who cares about them? The word redneck can sometimes be used by people to describe themselves, like when black people use the N-word themselves to take ownership of it, take the power away. Here's nearly 200 hits on the CBC's website of the term redneck, and no, when Trudeau's state broadcaster publishes that word from Toronto, it is not always in a loving way, is it? But who cares? White people aren't allowed, they're not involved. You saw it for yourself. By the way, this is what they do in Ottawa's CBC. The country is in a terrible crisis. Parliament barely even meets anymore. Most government is done by executive order, often by health bureaucrats no one's ever heard of before. National unity is a mess. Inflation, floods washing out BC highways, crime, of course, housing prizes. There, there are one or two stories that you might think, oh, I don't know, CBC's at reporters at CBC News in Ottawa would care about if they're in the news business, but while the world burns outside their window, they're busy making lists of words they don't like. I'm serious. CBC News, but it gets better. Apparently some experts got involved, because you know, there's experts in hurt feelings. We ran some of the words by anti-racism and language experts who said some of these phrases can be hurtful to various groups of people for their historical and cultural context. Hmm. Experts, got it. What is an anti-racism expert? In my experience, it's often a racism expert, someone whose job is to spread division and hatred and bickering and foster disunity and to train new immigrants to Canada to think that we are an unwelcoming place even though we just welcome them. Being an English speaker doesn't entail that you necessarily know the racist etymology automatically said I.E. Taniguchi, a linguist and an associate language studies professor with the University of Toronto, Mississauga, in an email to CBC. Etymology is the study of the origins of words and the way their meanings change over time. The fact that you said it oblivious to the etymology doesn't automatically make you a bad person. <laughs> Uh, what you do, once you find out a word is racist, sexist, or ableist etymology come, carries more importance, she explained. Hmm. Who's Ai Taniguchi? Have you, have you ever heard of her? She's here to tell you that you aren't necessarily racist, sexist, or ableist, but if you don't immediately agree with her, to stop using words she doesn't like after she tells you what she thinks they mean, you will turn into a racist, sexist, or ableist. It's like the five-second rule when you drop food on the ground. Well, you've got five seconds to stop saying words she doesn't like, or then you'll be a racist, sexist, ableist. 
I had never heard of this professor. I found her Twitter account pretty quickly, though. It's sort of what you'd expect someone uh, with her pronouns in her bio uh, who tweets pictures about knitting for her cats. I'm not making that up. That just makes me laugh. That's so on the nose. But I noticed that she immigrated to Canada and she actually grew up in Japan. Now, I got to tell you, I really like Japan. I admire so many things about it. I think it's a very civilized country. But I don't think it's really controversial to say that, that it's, I'm sorry, it, it's, it's pretty racist. It allows nearly zero immigration. It has an ethnic superiority complex towards many people, including other people in Asia. That, that's just part of its culture. I don't, I don't think I'm being mean by observing that. I, I'm not going to even get into the rape of Nanking or anything horrific or the supremacism that launched Japan into a terrible war. Like I say, I, I truly admire Japan, but it's just a bit much for someone who came to Canada from a 99.9% .9 racially homogenous country that literally accepted 47 refugees last year. 47, not 47,000. It's just a bit much for someone from Japan to come here to tell us we're racist when we say the word blacklist. I'm not picking on her for being Japanese. I'm picking on her for being a total bloody hypocrite. And maybe just a teeny tiny chance of it here. I mean, just guessing here. Maybe she's a racist herself. I mean, they have a superiority complex over there in, in Japan. I don't know if that's her. She feels quite at home lecturing Canadians about our racism. Perhaps it's because she feels an ethnic superiority to us. I don't know. I've never met her. She looks like a kook in her social media. Um, she's never met me either, though, but she says I'm sexist for saying the word grandfathered or whatever. And hey, even if you think they're crazy, there's a lot more of them. So maybe you're the crazy one? <laughs> I'll read some more. Anti-racism trainer Jas Kalra agrees. It's not so much about political correctness. Oh, sure it is. I think it's about the empirical accuracy. And if somebody really calls us out on a particular word, we need to stop and say, it's not about me, said Kalra, who runs Ottawa-based Jas Kalra Consulting and coaches people in organizations on inclusion and diversity. I'm sure she does. She's all for inclusion except for language and people she doesn't like. But look at this next line. This is from a black man, but I put it to you. This could be said by a white Klansman. Let me quote, blackmail, blacklist, and black sheep. The issue here is that these are all negative terms, said Joseph Smith, an anti-racism trainer and educator. It connotes evil, distrust, lack of intelligence, ignorance, a lack of beauty, the absence of white. This lowering of blackness on the spectrum with regards to value was developed further in the wake of the transatlantic slave trade, but it also predates that, explains Smith. Um, can, can I ask a, a question? Are you crazy? A black hole. It's not negative. That, that's its color because it absorbs all the light. Black sheep. That's the color of a sheep. You know what we call someone who thinks black is negative? We call that person a racist. 
it reminds me of this wonderful sketch by comedian Ryan Long. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play the whole thing. This is a perfect video. Take a look. When me and Brad first met, I didn't think we'd get along, but turns out we kind of agree on everything. Your, Your racial identity is the most important thing. thing. Everything, everything should be looked at through the lens of race. Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Damn. We both have a lot of opinions about people of color, even though we barely know any. I say colored people, but as long as we're classifying them, we both think minorities are a united group who think the same and act the same. And both the same. You don't want to lose your black card. Sorry, I don't know. I just think we should roll, roll back, back discrimination laws so we can hire based on race again. Jinx, now you owe me a Coke. Hey, tell them what you told me yesterday. White actors should only do voices for white cartoon characters. Been saying that for years. Stick to your own. Us white people, we have so much privilege. I agree. It is a privilege to be white. Ask him about interracial dating. All I said is that black men who date white women have internalized racism, and white men that date ethnic women are fetishizing them. Guys against interracial dating now. Like, am I being pranked? Did Boomer put you up to this? Ugh, you know that taco place is white-owned? White people should be making white foods, like Kraft macaroni and cheese, no seasoning, not even salt. It's like he's a mind reader. I mean, I've been pushing for segregation forever, and my man does what? I created an improv comedy show exclusively for ethnic people. Guy segregates comedy on my birthday. White people need to stop wearing dreadlocks, and they need to stop appropriating black people's music. Shaved heads and country music, the way God intended. You know all white people are racist. I'm listening. Even if you have a black wife or a black friend group, you're still really racist. You know, he just kicked the guy out of the organization for having a black girlfriend, but if you can promise me he's still really racist, we'll consider letting him back in. Black people should only shop at black businesses. I guess the only thing we really disagree about is I think white people are the root of all evil. But what did I tell you, though? If we can narrow that down to a certain group of tiny-hatted white people, I think we can come to an understanding. Technically, I don't consider Jewish people white Neither because... Neither do I. Isn't that perfect? This article in the CBC goes on and on and on and on and on. You know what phrase they hate? You're going to laugh. First world problem. People have slowly moved away from using the term third world to describe low-income countries, says cholera. But the phrase first world problem is still used to convey that something is an issue only to those who live in a country with privilege and wealth. It can be classist, she said. When we're saying first world, we're putting them at the top. What does it convey, she said? Why do we have to use these prefixes, which kind of dehumanize some country or some human being or a group? Um, no, it, it's a sign that you're too rich and too privileged and too pampered, and you have a fake job as a diversity coach, and you have such luxury and such ease in your life. You can spend time talking about things like this, that you can actually get a degree in this, that you can get a job with the state broadcaster in their news department, and instead of reporting news as your country burns down, you and your friends can come up with fake problems in the freest, least racist country in the world. I love that these pampered academics claim that they care about classism as if they would even tolerate for one second a genuine working class person of any race. Have you ever met a real person? Have you ever been to a factory? Have you ever gone to a bar? And I don't mean a bar where they charge $20 for a you know, gin and tonic. I'm talking a real bar. You know, Real people use words like blacksmith and Manitoba. They even sometimes tell offensive jokes. Don't tell me you're not classist. This story goes on for pages. I'm not going to read anymore. It's too long. I, I know that it's, look at the bottom there. It's part of a series called Being Black in Canada. And who better to tell us what it's like to be black in Canada than a Korean-Canadian academic interviewing a Japanese immigrant academic? That's really speaking to the streets of the inner city, isn't it? Oops, sorry, not allowed to say inner city. Let me read from the story. 
ghettos and inner cities were typically seen to be places where less refined people lived, the people who weren't up to date culturally, development-wise, he said. Um, no, you wicked liar. It actually just means the inner city, which is different from the suburbs. The inner city is where apartments and condos are. The burbs are often where houses with yards are. So single people, poor people, young people are in the inner city, including many new immigrants who haven't climbed the economic ladder yet. If you won't even say inner city, you probably won't fix the problems of the inner city. You know, I remember talking to a wonderful professor of English from, I think it was the University of Oregon in Eugene. And he was a black man himself, an accomplished author, award-winning. And he was talking to me about calls to ban the book Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, because there are some words in there that are today considered unacceptably racist. I know that's surely true about one of the greatest pro-black books of all time, one of my favorite books I've ever read. It's called Uncle Tom's Cabin. You got to read it. It's a big book, but it's a great book. It's an anti-slavery book that sold so many copies. It sold 300,000 copies in the United States when that country just had 30 million people. Um, that was the Harry Potter of its day. So many people read that book that when Abraham Lincoln met the author, a woman named Harriet Beecher Stowe, he said to her, I think I've told you this before, he said, so this is the little lady who made this big war. It's talking about the Civil War because this book galvanized people against slavery. Look, that book has many bad words in it, too. It was written 150 years ago, and that book helped emancipate the slaves. Ask Abraham Lincoln. But that professor, we were talking about whether the right word was black or African-American or Afro-American or person of color or colored person. And I was yielding to him. I wanted to hear what he thought. And he said, I remember, I got to try and find that old video. This was at Sun News. He said, you can use any word you like. And then he said, you can use the word, sir. But if you don't actually fix any of the problems affecting black Americans, you're nothing but a dilettante. You don't actually care. In fact, it's hiding the fact you don't care. And he was bloody right. He was right. You know, the CBC is worse than that, though. They want to sow the seeds of racism and division. They claim to be anti-racist. They're actually the racists. They claim to want to heal. They actually tear apart. If Canada were a racist hotbed, people wouldn't be streaming here in record, unrelenting numbers, legally and illegally. I admit there are some racists, like our black-faced prime minister is true. But those are anomalies. These hucksters at the CBC, including people who come here from truly awful places, but then call us the awful ones, they're the racists. They're the dividers. They're the bigots. Let me close with this. This is from the Orwell's book, 1984. You ought to read it again. And you'll remember what it's actually about. It's about a lot of things. It's about a mad world. But one of the tools of the madness and the control isn't just the TV screens that watched you. Wasn't that a premonition? It's not just the informants that ratted on you. It was the language itself. They called it newspeak that replaced English, that removes words from the language so you couldn't think thoughts. Let me read a little bit from 1994. I'm just going to read a little bit. By 2050, earlier probably, all real knowledge of old speak, 
That's what they called English, will have disappeared. The whole literature of the past will have been destroyed. Chaucer, Shakespeare, Milton, Byron, they'll exist only in newspeak versions. Not merely changed into something different, but actually contradictory of what they used to be. Even the literature of the party will change. Even the slogans will change. How could you have a slogan like freedom is slavery when the concept of freedom has been abolished? The whole climate of thought will be different. In fact, there will be no thought. As we understand it now, orthodoxy means not thinking, not needing to think. Orthodoxy is unconsciousness. Oh my God, that is coming true. So yeah, I got to tell you, I'm not going to stop saying words because some Trudeau racist at the CBC State Broadcaster tells me to. And I hope you don't either. Stay with us for more. That is astonishing, a massive crowd in Rome, Italy, in the Circus Maximus, a place where people have gone for thousands of years, actually. Uh, however, the New York Times, their man in Rome, he summed it up this way, protests against Italy's health paths fizzle. If that was a fizzle, I can only, I can only imagine what it takes to impress the New York Times. But I think they're more about shaping uh, the opinion of its readers rather than informing them with the news. We're happy to go live to Rome via Skype to talk to Bree Dale, who writes for the Epoch Times in that city. We've spoken to Bree before. Bree, I'm glad you're there to tell the other side of the story because if one were to rely on the mainstream media or what I sometimes call the media party, I think they're more interested in a narrative than actually reporting on things. How is the population of Italy responding to their vaccine mandates? Can you tell our viewers a little bit, first of all, uh, how many protesters and what is their nature? And second of all, what are they protesting against? What, what is the vaccine passport, which they call the, I guess, the Green Pass over there? Uh, what's that like? So Ezra, you know, uh, that particular protest, Italian news sources have said that over 4,000 individuals were in Circus Maximus that day. And, um, you know, what, what's in, incredible is to see that despite protests up and down in Italy, uh, despite massive protests, um, because of uh, really green, pa uh, green pass uh, mandates, uh, vaccination mandates uh, throughout Italy, um, including uh, for working uh, spaces, for uh, medical professionals, uh, for the military, for police, um, and even to be able to enter a restaurant, uh, a gym, uh, a, a place of worship, um, these things are being um, essential now uh, to being able to have this freedom. And, and, and people are pushing back. Even people who have received the vaccination are now saying that this is not fair 
there. And, and Ezra, part of that reason is simply because uh, the universal health care here in Italy uh, was very slow in the vaccine rollout. And so many people who wanted the vaccine were not able to get the vaccine before mandates started this past year, including the Green Pass, Ezra. Hmm. Now, you were telling me before we turn on the camera that um, even the poor are not allowed on public transit if they're not jabbed. So if you don't have a car, and, and you know, I, I, not everyone does, and if the most marginalized people, they have to either get jabbed, they're forced to, or they have to pay some sort of fee or fine. Can you explain that? Right. So uh, this new um, mandate that has just come out, uh, which is called the Super Green Pass, it will begin in the 6th of December, I believe, um, indicates that unless you are um, either having the, the vaccine or you've had COVID and um, how they have that ability and that knowledge uh, is that, again, universal health care, the government has access uh, to those records and that those records are digitalized. And, and so... Um, if, if people have not received uh, the vaccine or who haven't had uh, COVID, and this includes um, now, you know, it was with the, the original Green Pass, you had the ability to um, get the nasal swab test within 72 hours and have a Green Pass. Now it's no longer the case with the Super uh, Green Pass. You're not going to be able to access uh, a lot of this mass transit. Uh, what that does to the poor is it, it marginalizes them. Again, many people simply haven't had the access uh, to get their uh, their vaccines, even though this is universal health care. We did see a video of a woman, an elderly woman, a few months ago trying to access a hospital. She had yet to receive her vaccine, and she was not permitted to go into the hospital, Ezra. So we are seeing this, um, this pushback by people who have uh, the vaccine saying, look, we should still have the rights to our own bodies, and we should have the right to be able to work and we've seen that also at the at the ports Ezra you know um, I, I find it incredible that Austria in particular has gone so far down the road of forced vaccines and I'm not comparing Austrians today to the Nazis of 80 years ago but it was there that it happened. That was the episode. That's where Hitler was born, um, and it was in reaction to some of the horrific crimes of the Nazis that the so-called Nuremberg Code of Medical Ethics was developed. It was the Nazi doctors were put on trial, and that's where we developed the ideas of free and informed consent before you engage in any medical tests or trials or injections. And it's shocking to me to see Austria revert to forced jabs, but more than that, the police-type enforcement of demanding people show their papers, of literally running people in the streets. And I, I mean, maybe it's because I'm over here in North America. It just looks so, like if you were to write that in, as a Hollywood script, the, the agent would say, no, that's too on the nose. You would never have fascism come back in Austria. But, and I feel the same way when you describe certain things in Italy. Italy, 80 years ago, had a fascist leader too, a Mussolini. And he was not, he did not reach the depths of depravity of the Nazis, thank God. But, but the, this authoritarian instinct to see it come back in Italy, Austria, Germany, I find very disconcerting. And does no one else see the historical parallels? 
Um, it's it's very much in front of people. Uh, the Stasi has been um, <laughs> has been referenced a few times. Um, you know, one of one of the big issues are the propaganda, and and people are seeing it within the media and holding them account. But really, social media has really kept this alive. And um, it, it, you know, it's not just Austria; it's Germany that has now also taken up um, this uh, draconid and uh, draconian me uh, measures. You know, and and we're seeing this also being proposed in certain regions in Italy. Um, but people are pushing back, Ezra, and um, you know, it just it just reminds us uh, that uh, when you provide power to the government um, because of fear, uh, it's very hard to get that power back um, unless people in mass uh, call for it. So we are seeing that happen throughout Italy, uh, and we've seen it now happen in Germany and Austria as well, uh, as, well as people are, people are rising up. And they're not anti-vaxxers. That should that should be made note. Not all of these people are anti-vaxxers. Very few are. Mm -hmm. um, they are anti-mandate and government overreach. Yeah, it's incredible. I referred to the New York Times earlier. Um, that same article referred to the anti-forced, uh, anti-COVID pass, anti-mandate uh, people as the neo-fascists, uh, which I think is gaslighting. I mean, the people forcing medical procedures using the power of the state I mean, I, I don't know if I would call them neo-fascists just yet, but imagine calling the civil libertarians against that neo-fascists. It's just incredible. Well, let me ask you this. I sense that in the United States, a lot of people are just getting tired of it. And there's, I think America is falling into two real different camps. You have the, the states that love being free, Texas, Florida, you, you know, college football games with 100,000 people. So you have people who are clearly saying, we're done, it's never coming back. And then you have other jurisdictions in America where they seem to love masks. They seem as like some sort of amulet. They love boosters. They can hardly wait to get their kids. But at least there's another side of the story in America. How is Europe? Is, is it a monolithic groupthink? Or are there people not just political activists, but normal people saying, no, we're done with this now. Um, clearly, it, it, it looks like people are, are getting tired of fear-mongering. Um, it's just to, to what level? In the United States, uh, it does seem that people still uh, want to hold their their representatives accountable, where it does seem more like the, the those who are in leadership positions in Europe um, think the people are there to serve them. And there is that dichotomy. Um, you know, one of the things, Ezra, that I was talking with a, a bar owner today whose bar is going to have to be closed due to mandates for Christmas and the first of the year. Um, you know, they have looked to the United States as uh, for the last few years in leadership and. Um, they have said, where is the United States in, in ending all of this? This is, you know, 15 days to slow the spread has now gone to 88 months. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, what are, what are we supposed to do with this? And, and so they are, they're calling, they're looking to the United States for the leadership and they're seeing the, um, the, the data coming out of the, the free states, such as in Florida. Well, it's incredible, and I certainly hope Italy remains free. Brie Dale of the Epoch Times, great to see you again. Thanks for your time tonight. Thank you. My pleasure, Ezra. Right on. Stay with us. More ahead.
Hey, welcome back to your viewer feedback. Alfonso Liberty says, Trump's new social media platform, Truth Social, will be coming online in February. We may finally get an alternative to Twitter and Facebook. Well, I hope so. Um, you know, February is not too far away. I know there are some alternatives out there, but they haven't really caught on in a ferocious way. And here's what's on my mind about that. Part of the fun of being on Twitter or Facebook is that you're in the grand marketplace of ideas, the public square. You're not off in a corner, to use a banned word from the CBC. You're not off in a ghetto. You're not just recirculating your ideas amongst your own echo chamber. You're engaging with the other side. There's debates. That's what's sort of fun about it and dangerous about Twitter is the banter, the, the trolling each other, the flame wars, as they're called. So I think that uh, Trump's social media site will be every Trumpist, every pro-Trump activist in America and a lot of leftist reporters joining just to see any offensive comments and putting that on Trump. You're not going to get non-Trump people in there. You're not going to certainly get liberals or leftists in there other than as trolls. So, I mean... Sure, it's good if you're marketing things, marketing things, let's say, to people on the right. But it's not that true national conversation where you have different points of view. That's why it would make me sad if we would be sacked from YouTube and sacked from Twitter altogether. Because I do want to talk to people who aren't on my side already. I, I want to try and convince them. It's just a shame that Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, etc. are pushing us off. We're not leaving on our own. Mark Lozen said, gone from made in China to owned by China. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? There's, you know, that could be applying to half the stories we talk about these days. Very frustrating. Judy 101 says, prior to COVID, you've always heard of foreign investment was a good thing, yet everyone was warned this was the process of selling off our natural resources and country. This was all predicted and ignored. Well, we're so reliant on China for so many things, especially for certain minerals. But really, one of the things that struck me was that 90% of our pharmaceuticals are actually manufactured in China. Did you know that? Odds are, if you're taking a medicine, a pill, even a vitamin, it is made in China. Uh, that could be a quality control issue, but I think it's more a strategic issue. Do you really want your sworn military geopolitical enemy to have control of essential industries like that? Well, that's our show for today. Until tomorrow, on behalf of all of us here at Rebel World Headquarters, to you at home, good night. Keep fighting for freedom. And let me leave you with a video by Tamara Ugolini. Hundreds of Canadians gathering for an underground prohibition speakeasy-style COVID science conference in the greater Toronto area. This is what we've come to, folks. Take a look. I'm Tamara Ugolini for Rebel News, and adjacent to me, there is a private panelist discussion taking place here at an undisclosed location in the greater Toronto area. The privacy of the venue, all attendees, including some of the academics that comprise of the panelists, well, their privacy is being upheld, and so I am not able to bring you the full scope of the event that's happening here at this location today. All attendees have been instructed to turn off their GPS, put their, plane, their phones on airplane mode, or better yet, turn their phones off completely. 
And there is to be no posting on social media, either before, during, or after the event. There are plain closed police and private security ensuring the physical safety of everyone present here today. And the whole thing is really just straight up prohibition style. That's the reality that we are living here in Canada as critical thinkers in 2021. What this event is about is questioning the narrative, sharing evidence-based research, advocating for our right to body sovereignty and the right to be free from non-consensual medical treatment. But overall, it's also to connect. It's to show people in real time, in person, that they are not alone in questioning, just questioning and listening to your intuition that something doesn't seem right here, that the government's response to the pandemic isn't adding up. The state of emergency is in question and the ethical violations that have come as a result of rolling lockdowns and knee-jerk reactions, despite mounting evidence showing their harms, this event is intended to bring people hope, to know that there are others like you out there that want to connect in person, unmasked and not socially distanced. Topics of discussion ranged from dissection of legalese around the Charter of Rights, the Bill of Rights and the Ontario Human Rights Commission. Other speakers included medical professionals and academics that have lost their jobs due to alleged non-compliance with indiscriminate and unconstitutional mandates. One epidemiologist with former experience at the Public Health Agency of Canada, he spoke of the five pillars of outbreak response and how that's been ignored and the general collaboration of esteemed individuals and the general population they're working to create new institutions and innovative systems of education, healthcare, and information sharing. Because it's becoming clearer and clearer that we're not going to change or come back from the narrative that is being imposed on us without our consent. You know that new normal that everyone talks about? So what the people at this conference and in this room to, behind me today are doing is connecting to move forward out of this grotesque mess without using a risky, experimentally rushed drug. They're doing it in a way that's inclusive, utilizes evidence-based best practices, is open and transparent with debate and information sharing. Because if not you, then who? And if not now, then when? For Rebel News, I'm Tamara Ugolini. I traveled in inclement weather for three hours both ways to attend this five-hour event with my nursing eight-month-old. This is the kind of on-the-ground reporting that you won't find anywhere else. To support my travels and this important work, please consider donating, if you're able, to our website at rebelinvestigates.com. As you know, we don't take any money from the government to narrate what we publish, and so we must follow the facts wherever they lead. And today, that led me here. And then I can bring this information to you, our viewers. To help support this work, please consider, again, donating at rebelinvestigates.com.